Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntris here, very excited about today's uh, two guests. First, we've got Adrian Paul coming up. That's right, Duncan McLeod, TV's Highlander, is joining us not only to talk about uh, that excellent television show, but uh, something new that he's working on. Uh, it's called The Sword Experience, and it's an opportunity to meet and learn sword technique from Adrian Paul himself. I mean, this is a guy that really knows what he's doing, did it for a long time on television and in films, and is now passing that knowledge on to you, whether you're an aspiring actor, uh, a historical reenactor, uh, a, a live-action role player. This is a great experience, and he is bringing the sword experience from uh, city to city, amazing backdrops, and it sounds like it's a great one-of-a-kind experience that I hope you're going to take advantage of. Adrian Paul joins us in part one of Word Balloon today. In part two, author and NPR broadcaster Glenn Weldon joins us. Glenn, you might know from his podcast, uh, NPR's Pop Culture Party. Also, a couple years ago, we had Glenn on when he wrote a great book, An Unauthorized History of Superman. Now he has a book called The Cape Crusade, and it's all about the history of Batman, but more importantly... How uh, pop culture has influenced the interpretations of Batman and vice versa. And uh, it's a great book and it's a great opportunity to talk to Glenn about Batman through the decades. Some of the controversies that have popped up. Uh, the various political swings that Batman has made from uh, being the uh, deputized agent of the law, as uh, Adam West says, to uh, the vigilante that uh, Frank Miller gave us in the 80s. Uh, even to the most recent Batman-Superman interpretation. Lots of conversation about Batman in Part 2 of Word Balloon with Glenn Weldon. It's a great talk. I hope you join us for it. Word Balloon today is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support. I keep getting new listeners all the time, and I know a lot of it has to do with the fact that through word of mouth, you are letting your friends know that you like Word Balloon. They might like it, too. So thanks very much for the support on Word Balloon. And if you uh, want to help uh, directly support Beyond the Word of Mouth, Word Balloon is free. It'll always be free. But uh, if you can help out the show through a subscription via Patreon, go to wordballoon.com. Click on the Patreon ad. It'll take you to uh, the Patreon site. We've got video there uh, explaining uh, you know, how I use the money. And uh, I thank you very much for your monthly support on Patreon. It really does make it easier to get to conventions, to make the connections that make for interesting conversation and new guests on every Word Balloon episode. Word Balloon is also today brought to you by Amazon.com, another great way to help Word Balloon, that uh, it just you go about your normal shopping at Amazon. I'm sure you've heard this on other shows, too. But if you go through the Amazon portal at WordBalloon.com and make your normal purchases, it, the stuff doesn't cost any more. It's the same Amazon that you normally go through. It's just that going through the Word Balloon portal, uh, Word Balloon gets a little bit of a kickback. At least that's how we call it in Chicago. A few pennies on the dollar as a referral thank you for uh, us bringing uh, you to Amazon through our portal. So uh, thanks. I mean, great opportunity to buy the Cape Crusade, Glenn's book, or his uh, previous Superman book. Certainly you can buy a, a ton of Adrian Paul uh, movies and television, Highlander on DVD or Blu-ray, some of the other great projects that uh, Adrian's been involved with. We didn't talk about Love Potion Number 9. Remember that Sandra Bullock, Tate Donovan movie from uh, the late 90s? Adrian was uh, in that movie as well. But, uh, yeah, so if you want to help out Word Balloon, uh, uh, making your purchases through Amazon, through the Word Balloon portal, uh, helps you and it helps us. So uh, thanks. A lot of people have done it, and I really do appreciate that as well. So that's a great way you can support Word Balloon just by normal shopping. So uh, consider that the next time you make an Amazon purchase, that you do it through the Word Balloon portal. 
Okay, without further ado, let us uh, start our conversation with Adrian Paul, TV's Duncan McLeod. I'm, I'm so excited to have this opportunity to talk to him. We just wrapped up that conversation a couple hours ago, and I can't believe that I finally got to talk to the Highlander. So uh, I, I hope you enjoy this conversation about the sword experience with Adrian Paul, now on Word Balloon. I cannot believe I'm speaking to Adrian Paul, TV's Highlander, but a whole lot more. He's here to talk to us about the Sword Experience, uh, an excellent uh, conference that he's going to be doing, and uh, we're going to go into details now. But uh, Adrian, a pleasure to meet Duncan McLeod. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. How you doing? Doing excellent. Hey, congrats on this new venture, but really a very interesting career. I would think with all <laughs> uh, everything that's been happening in genre fiction. God, you know, for the last 15 years has really been exciting. But I, I would think as an established star yourself, it's presenting a lot of interesting movie and TV opportunities as well. It, it can. I mean, I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of the uh, genres today are for younger audience, in a sense. You know, when they, they choose the action stars now, it's it's the like it used to be 20, 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds. Sure. Those are the guys that are doing it. It's, um, my era was... A while back, but uh, you know, I still I still do stuff, and I still got a couple of things I've got coming out. So, hey man, I got to tell you, on the videos, you look great uh, doing the sword experience commercials. No, no lie, man, I'm not being nice. So, uh, you know, <laughs> yes, you are, of course, you are. Hey, well, I got to tell you, well, you know, if we were in the same room, I'd be nicer. But no, honestly, man, I think you look good, and um, I remember that uh, the pirate movie you made a couple of years ago too. It wasn't that long ago for uh, Sci Fi no, Channel. Two thousand six. Okay, you be you'd be surprised tonight. Eight or nine years ago, I'm just trying to figure out. Wow! But yeah, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, seriously, you just sit there going, "It's not longer," but that's what happens when we get busy. We forget how fast time flies. I mean, it's already April, and I, I, I just finished Christmas. I, <laughs> I understand. Same problem, man. But I see you have a, a production company called Radical Road, and you're getting into uh, working on the other side of the camera too. I, am I right? Are you prepping your first uh, directorial debut? Yeah, I've got, a, I've got. A, Two companies actually. One's Film Blitz, one's Radical Road. Radical Road is uh, a smaller um, budget um, movies, which are aimed at the up to three point five million dollar pictures. Um, okay, it's really to stay in that in that genre, and the genre really runs anything within that sort of three point five range. But uh, we've got uh, our first slate. We're actually going into funding right now on, and um, I'm supposed to be directing another feature at the end of the year. I say supposed to because everything changes in this business, you know. I understand, but, man. Um, are there are there more opportunities now with all of these platforms? I mean, beyond you know cable and international television and uh, the American networks and all the various country networks and stuff. Uh, I would imagine with all the streaming that's going on as well, is are, are, are there opportunities there that you're exploring? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as a, as a production company, it does open up your channels, and I think that's why you're seeing so much uh, content now is that there are so many different places to actually stream or, or play your, um, your um, product sure. that the, the you know, possibility of actually getting a return is slightly higher. Well, good luck, man. I, you know, like I said, yeah, it seems like it's a it's a great opportunity. And again, you come with this wonderful Highlander heritage that you're not only bringing to your uh, your new TV and, and, and film possibilities, but also the sword experience. Uh, let's give people a chance to hear about uh, this new venture that uh, I believe starts uh, this weekend, April 10th, right? Yes, starts in Temecula this weekend. I I did pre I want to call them pre sword experiences last year. They weren't really pre. They were the 
preamble to them in a sense as to figuring out how it, they would work. Um, I ran them in different cons where I, I ran a, um, a class for two and a half hours at the cons, two hours, two and a half hours, and people took those, um, those, those classes at the time of learning different sword choreography of some of the Highlander episodes that were out there, and that's kind of now grown into the sword experience, which is taking people to a really interesting location like they're on a movie set and creating fights from the movies specifically in, in the first couple would be Highlander, okay. but creating a space where they kind of feel like they're on a movie set, learning a fight and, and um, feeling what it's like to actually choreograph a fight and the difference between what real fighting is and what uh, movie fighting can be. That's fantastic. You know, I have a lot of actor friends in Chicago, and men and women, and it's really been fun to see the women uh, start to take combat classes, not only learning how to fight hand-to-hand, but also with weapons. So, yeah, I'm, I, I was kind of hip to this a couple of years ago, and I think it's fantastic. Who better to learn from than the Highlander? That's wonderful, man. <laughs> well, you know, weapons are an extension of your hand. I mean, uh, when I was doing Highlander, I would do a couple of times I'd do forms, uh, weapons forms, that were actually hand forms. And you just put a knife in it and, and you adjust it very slightly, and, and it becomes a, a form that uh, is utilized with a weapon in, in, your, in your hand. So, um, both go hand in hand. How many different kinds of uh, weapons uh, would people learn uh, doing the sword experience? Well, I, I'll primarily study on the sword because okay. obviously but there are, the sword <laughs> goes along a, a lot of different areas, and that's why the sword experience now, because a lot of people have asked me, oh, can you do a sword video? Can you do a training video? Can you do an exercise video? And I, I never really wanted to do them per se before, but now... With, such, with the advent of so many different um, TV shows like uh, Star Wars, uh, sorry, Game of Thrones, sure. Into the Badlands, there's Zelda, there's uh, uh, the Highland, of course, Game of Thrones. They're all different swords. Um, and my idea is to begin it with a lot of the Highlander uh, type weapons, but then take it into creating spaces that may be a Star Wars set where you're in the middle of the galaxy fighting, you know, Darth Vader. Certainly. Um, but you learn, you learn how to. Um, do, do some real choreography and um, it'll teach you know about the basics of how to do things if you're an experienced person that too works because the choreography can get uh, challenging um, there'll be tips uh, you know what how you should deal with the camera um, what you should do shouldn't do um, respecting your opponent and the weapon that you have in your hand different things like that and stories of course that I've been able to sort of partake um, over the years that I've done it and, you know, um, uh, the great thing, too, is you've been uh, very experienced at choreographing fights yourself. So, uh, yeah. Can, yeah, tell me tell me yeah. about that. Well, that, that's that's always fun. I always, always like to create. I mean, when you mentioned Captain Drake a minute ago, the, uh, yeah. the pirate movie, Captain Drake, I choreographed all the sword fights in that. Um, but I wasn't credited, but I did do it. Um, and that, to me, is the fun part because, you know, you're creating a look and see whether you can do that. There are a lot of very good choreographers today, uh, but I do understand the process of choreographing something. And, and I think the the people I work with are, are testament for that because, you know, I have some very good people I worked under or with. Bob Anderson, for one, who was a, I mean, that man, uh, I mean, he really created some of the sword fights uh, from many, many years ago. He, he was the guy beneath the Star Wars mask. He choreographed all the fights from First Night to Highlander to Star Wars and Princess Bride, 
etc., etc. I mean, he just went on and on. And uh, I, what I found from him, and I think this is part of why the experience is where I it sticks in my brain about creating a space, was he would look at a space and create a fight around a space rather than creating a fight and putting the space and putting the fight into the space. Sure. So he would look at it and go, well, against this, we'd smash this. And against that, we do this. So it's all that idea of being able, being creative as a choreographer or as a sword master. But yes, there's technique, absolutely. But at the end of the day, when you're dealing with movie fighting, there is either doing it the way you want something a little bit more gritty and violent. So there's a lot of hand, uh, hand-to-hand uh, exchanges or very close cuts. Or you do a longer shot where you want to see those actors doing it, so you have to choreograph something that's movement-oriented so that it doesn't stay very static uh, on the screen so that it moves. Therefore, there's a different type of choreography. In addition to movie and stage choreography, you've got people that are doing live-action role plays and historical reenactments. All of those are the rage right now. So certainly uh, doing the sword experience would be great for those people as well. Well, I had a, a, quite a few of them last year because, as I said, I, I ran these. I did about six of these last year mm-hmm. from Sacramento to Pittsburgh to uh, Reno, a lot of different places. And, you know, I had people that were – I had a, a, a stage combat uh, choreographer come in. I had resort reenactment people. I had uh, cosplayers. I had Highlander fans. I had a variety of people. And, and you know, the idea was to sort of um, be able to run the – the, the gamma of this can apply this way or it can, it can apply this way. You just decide to choose how you want it to um, to, to work for your own uh, application. On the show, Highlander, how many different swords did you have? I mean, they all look the same, but did you, how many different, yeah, I mean, or did you have several that you used depending on the shot or, or whatever? Well, you know, obviously I, I, I used a lot of different swords because I was going through time, you know. There That's was a broad sword, there was <laughs> That's a katana, true. There was, the rapier, there was the cutlass. I mean, well, I mean, literally, I used a lot of different uh, uh, stuff. We did Spadi uh, Daga, which is um, the um, Spanish conquistadores um, style, which was a very long rapier type weapon with a with a dagger in the other hand, and that was very very specific, Dif- difficult to do because it was very precise. Because that's what they were look for. They were trained for years just to go for sockets under the arm, in the eye in the neck, un- under the knee, under, you know, all wow. those types of places where the armor was, the idea was, is where the armor wasn't, uh, where it was exposed, where sure. the flesh was exposed. So you had to be very specific with that. And that, that's a very another, that's another style that was um, tougher to do. And, and obviously I'm not going to do that to, for people that come <laughs> in because my class is from like beginners up. It's, it's the whole martial artists have come in. I've had, you know, a, a bunch of different people come in and, uh, you know, it just teaches you a different uh, discipline as well as it's a workout. I mean, I I'm bet. doing four hours. The sword experience is a four, four and a half hour uh, a session wow. whereby you go through, you know, learning positioning, learning footwork, learning uh, how to do choreography, how, learning how to go with an opponent, switching to another opponent that might be better or not as good as the opponent you just saw. So it's a whole, you know, um, variety of things that you go through and set in a great location. Um, the first one we have here, which is a slightly different one, um, we will have the whole day, whereas the one we have in Chicago, which is coming on May 1st, that's actually going to be half day. That's um, from 8 until 1. Okay. This one here is from 8 until 5, but it's split up. You have the, the sword work in the morning, then you've got, you've got breakfast, you've got the signing of the sword that you get, the, the certificate, the, um, 
lunch and then there's wine tasting and discount on wines, uh, live music. That's a whole day's experience. So it's different. And that's what I want to give people. I want to give them a fun day to go out and learn something at the same time. That's fantastic. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask in terms beyond the workout, what other kind of uh, you know festivities are going on. So, yeah, my God, a full day uh, at Temecula, as you say, in California, and Chicago, May 10th, uh, four hours. So, uh, but yeah, you know, obviously people are going to want to take a picture with you and, like you say, get their swords signed. Um, yeah, those, those kind of basics. Now, they can go to the swordexperience.com for more information on each location and what, what can be done. Yes, that's right. We've got uh, we've got uh, there's a drop down menu on there. It'll show you actually. There's on the site now. We have six locations we're going to. We have a, I know of that we're talking about and finalizing about ten. Uh, so there's quite a few. We start with Temecula, then we go to Chicago, then we go to Houston, which is almost sold out now. Um, so Temecula's very close to. I know, we're looking for. I think there's been another five people on that one. Um, and then uh, there's London, Stuttgart, then I think Pensacola, then there's a month off, which we're planning. I know where we're going, but I, I haven't been secured yet, so I can't say it. But then there's Minneapolis, okay. and I have another one, which is not secured yet. Then I have a, I have two more at the end that are um, that are being planned at the moment, which are uh, much bigger ones too as well. So it's really to sort of, as I go as we move forward and as we go through the, the year, we book as we go. And as we get further ahead, then we'll plan one or two a year that are vacations for people, like a day or two or three days that people can go away for two or three days to Mexico or the Caribbean or somewhere really exotic, have a vacation, learn something, and take their spouse or their other half with them and go, go uh, to, um, dolphin watching or... or uh, sure. Uh, shark washing or, or fishing or, or go to the local ruins or the, whatever they want to do. So we're creating those ones as well. Yeah, you know, I almost wondered with some of the uh, foreign cities that you'll be going to, the opportunity to go to castles or other great locations that beyond learning the technique, you can really get a feel of, wow, look what I'm doing and stuff and really make it this full experience. That's fantastic, man. Very yeah, because cool. that's that's the, really the cool thing we've had. You know, and one of the things on our site, we've asked people where they want us to go and what locations are around them. And now we're also creating what we call a ninja army. Okay, people that are <laughs> in different places that will help us find locations or, or spread the word in that city, and they will get things like discounts on t-shirts, or they get uh, some discount on their sword experience, or things that they can spend as they get people to to join up. So we're creating this other portion of it now that we'll we'll start to spread the word uh, per se that um uh we want to create so that we we have a, a group uh feeling in this as well that's fantastic man yeah so people should go to the sword experience.com this is like learning how to shoot from the lone ranger you know or <laughs> <laughs> what do you think you about should. it I didn't know if you could <laughs> absolutely man no this is this is terrific i think it's a great idea man and and you're absolutely the man to to run this thing so so congratulations on a on a great idea and uh um, absolutely no i think this sounds like a hell of a lot of fun and uh god i wonder in chicago do, and i'll have to look up on the website exactly where you're going to be location wise and stuff you know because we don't have it's ruins, kind of, unfortunately, but, you know, yeah, tell me. No, you don't. But, but you <laughs> see, that's what I say. Every city has its specialty. And to me, Chicago had these really interesting – I mean, obviously, some of the locations we tried were way out of our budget. I mean, sure. you can't – you just can't – you know, seven, 8000 a day just doesn't work. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we can't afford that. But um, 
some of the other locations we have, um, and, and we're, we're diligently looking different places but that give us a feeling of what the sword fight will be. For instance, Houston is going to be at Con, and that one we want to do an, an experience where it's we dress up the area so that you're in like a the Star Wars movie set or the uh, Into the Badlands look or the Highlander look or whatever. So we create it so that you, you're able to get that. In Chicago, uh, we found a spot. Let me just pull it, pull it up now because I've actually uh, got oh, it here. It's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really cool – it's a, it's a, it's it, it reminds me of The Loft in, uh, in Highlander. Highlander had a, a, a very good uh, look at a um, – uh, it, was a, it was a loft that we had. And um, so the fight's going to look at um, what it was like to, to shoot that uh, sequence. Uh, the place is actually, where is it? I'm just looking at it now. It's, uh, I'm trying to find it. Where is it? Artifacts. Artifact Events. Okay. Which is, um, it's uh, on Ravenswood, um, on, on Ravenswood Road, uh, 4325 Ravenswood in Chicago, um, all the details are actually there, but you're close to the zoo, you're close to the conservatory. Sure. We're looking at places so you can go and have lunch afterwards. Um, you know, so it'll be, it'll be a fun place because this one, will, well, I'll do possibly the fight from one of the dojos that we, we, we did on, on the film. So you can go and look at the fight afterwards and see what the difference was or what, the, what you learned from it. And so th- those types of things. That's what I was wondering. So will people get videos of themselves in action if they do this as well? They'll have all photos will be done. There'll be some videos uh, put out. Wow. Yes, um, some of it we will keep for uh, you know our um, promotional uh, aspects. But um, you will be able to get all photos. We'll take all photos of you doing in action, doing everything that you're doing. And there'll be a little video clip we'll probably uh, do at the end to um, to promote uh, everybody and everybody can download that little clip. That's awesome, man. Well, everyone's got to get their gi or whatever kind of live action role playing uh, outfit they, you know together. <laughs> And uh, and try. You, you can wear anything. You can wear a dress forever. You know, it doesn't really matter. You know, whatever you're, whatever you're into, it's, it's okay. You know, I, that's awesome. At some point, I might come with, come with my kilt. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm... <laughs> One would hope, man. That's awesome. That's <laughs> that's really great. As we wrap up, a real fast question: What do you think of where genre fiction? That's the that's the highfalutin way of saying fantasy, sci-fi, western. Where all this is going right now? I mean, really, honestly. Thank you for your series, because truly, you guys kept the spirit alive as, you know, this morphed into what we're experiencing now, Star Wars movies every year, superhero movies every two or three months. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think of all this as someone who's, you know, been, you know, in this kind of action hero role? Yeah, I think, it, I think what happens is every few years we get cycles of type of uh, um, films and that. We, we, we are a society that gets... You know, I was talking about this the other day. How movies and plays and and this type of these types of things give us the storytelling that we were so used to when we used to huddle around a campfire when we were gathering rocks hundreds of hundreds of years, thousands of years ago. And so we get taken away into different areas. Some people like you know more horror. Some people might like more blood or western. Sure. This is now that we're in the fantasy era right now. I call it. Where you know all the action heroes and the superheroes and the and the comic books and all that have come to life, and so I think it's awesome because um, this is a, a different expression. Every year, every twenty years or so, we get a different expression. We had the Douglas Fairbanks sword fighting and Zorro and um, yeah. 
three musketeers and all that in the 50s and 60s and then there came star trek and and which was at the first oh my goodness what is that you know and then it becomes a, a huge cult following you bet and eventually it turns into what we have today which is all the ant-man and uh zelda and uh regard superman batman spider-man etc etc i think it's also i think you know it's just a different now that that um that allows the inner kid to still be alive in a sense Understood, man. No, and I and I'm glad that the the Highlander fans are still out there. It's you know I and I count myself among them. It's always whenever there's something new, it's always like, all right, man. You know that's good. Let's get back to the world. And no matter no matter what, truly, because you know there there've been good ones and there haven't been so good ones and everything. But you know we do come back because it's like that original thrill I think that we got from the first couple movies and certainly from the series. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, we're all we're all hoping to experience it again. Is there any chance of anything? I know that the source was a couple of years ago and was kind of an uneven film at the end of the day. But I mean, is it is it put to rest, or is it, would the Clarion Call ever come back for Duncan McLeod? You're such a gentleman in the way you describe that because the source, uh, <laughs> it was, you know, it was like a, if you if you cut the last quarter of the film, you would have been good. I hear you, man. Um, because it had something, but it, um, there was an unfortunate um, series of events that happened during the, the shooting of that and the, and the distribution of that. But would I do it again? Uh, yeah, I know that they're trying to redo the, the Highlander franchise, and they're, um, I, I heard there's uh, rumors of a series. There were definitely large rumors um, of uh, them putting together a film. I believe Lionsgate have it. Okay, uh, but they're revamping the first one. They're trying to revamp, redo the first one, and, and regenerate it that way. I think, I think the idea of Highlander is prime right now for 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 movie audiences. They're trying to make it, from what I understand, a hundred and twenty million dollar picture. Wow. I'm not wow. so sure. That's that's garnering a lot of money together. You got to have the right direction, right um, stars to put in, in that spot. You know, so um, when it comes about, it's been that has been bandied around for the past I don't know, 45 years now. Okay. And it's not come to fruition yet, but we'll see. You know, I mean, um, I, I just do my own stuff and, and uh, you know, this just happened to be something different. I'm actually bringing out a Highlander audiobook with Memories of Highlander type of thing um, at my charity event, which will be for my charity uh, where we'll launch it. We've got an event May 21st. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, there's a dinner for... Uh, um, there'll be Elizabeth Grayson, myself, uh, maybe Peter Wingfield. Uh, I'm talking to David Abramowitz, um, who was the creator and the showrunner. And it'll be a private dinner of about 20 people, so 20 spots. We're already beginning to fill them up. And there we'll launch the audiobook, and uh, there'll be a live radio show because I have a, ra- a radio podcast every week called Peace on Radio. Oh, fantastic, and, man. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, That's awesome. I do your job. Well, no, that's China. great. Well, no, that's good, man. Hey, no, the welcome to the podcast pool. I like it. That's fantastic. And what is the title yeah. again of your podcast? It's Peace Fund Radio. Peace, Peace Fund Radio. Protect, educate, aid children everywhere. I've had a charity for eighteen years now, nearly, and uh, this is the arm where I discuss all the different issues that face our kids in our society today. That we highlight different organizations. We bring in different celebrities. Um, you know, it's uh, it's uh, topics are always varied from AIDS to hunger to water shortage to homelessness, everything else. So I do that once a week. I'll be doing it for three and a half years now. That's excellent. And, uh, yeah. So, so, so that's, that's my passion. Is my my um, 
my my charity work is you know I've done it for a while. That's fantastic. Peace Fund Radio. That's the podcast. And man, great news about the audio book. I know a lot of people that would love to hear about your Islander stories. That's wonderful. Yeah, there's a couple there. I'll bring out something a little bit more in depth in another year or so, probably. But I've got to I've got to write it first. I um, it, I've just got so much on my plate that sometimes you just kind of how much when can I do this? Oh, I need to sleep. So that's good. I've got two kids that are three and six. So you can imagine I've got three year olds. Oh, congratulations. Run, run that's run wonderful. That's, yeah, so, that's great. Yeah, that's work. God bless yeah. my wife. You know, so. <laughs> I understand. No, that's – but that's really great, man, and I'm really glad that you've got all these projects, and uh, I, I know there's an audience waiting for this stuff. But the key now is, uh, is the Sword Experience the best way to keep up to date on your stuff, or is, is the Peace Radio uh, website the best place to keep up with your stuff? Well, the, the, I mean, I have – Several sites. I have um, the Sword Experience uh, site, which is Sword Experience on either Facebook or Twitter. Okay. I have Adrian Paul One on Twitter, which is my own personal one, and then my main site on Facebook is Adrian Paul, and that uh, I mean everything there goes through that, as well as I have the Peace Fund uh, site as well. So there's, <laughs> there's Peace Fund Radio, Peace Fund, um, and so. The, I've got a numerous amount of ways that you can actually keep up with what I'm doing. That's excellent. Most man. of them link to each other too. Okay, well, and yeah, and I'll and I'll go over them again uh, as we wrap up. But seriously, congratulations! I think the sword experience sounds like a hell of a lot of fun, and uh, I think it will be really educational for, as we say, actors, uh, historical reenactors, and the live action role players as well. And who better to learn from than the Highlander himself? So. Thanks a lot for talking today, man. And uh, as you get closer to the audio book, if you, if you want to come back and uh, promote that or any of the other future projects, I'd love to have you back. Fabulous. Thanks, brother. And thank you for having me on today. I can't believe it. Adrian Paul on Word Balloon. What's next? Adam West, William Shatner, bring him on. Now, it was great talking to Adrian. And honestly, the sort of experience sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, I can't believe it's coming to Chicago next month. So uh, go to thesortexperience.com or also uh, go to Adrian's uh, Facebook page for more information and keeping tabs on how you can participate participate on that. And, man, a Highlander audiobook. That sounds really cool. Looking forward to all those uh, new projects from Adrian Paul. Let's uh, shift gears now and uh, talk Batman for the rest of the show. A fun conversation with Glenn Weldon. This happened before. We did it with Superman when Glenn released his unauthorized Superman history. This, The Caper's Crusade, is from Simon & Schuster. It is authorized. But uh, at this time, uh, not only is he giving us a history of Batman, but also uh, an interesting spin on uh, the geek culture through the lens of Batman, as he puts it. Fun conversation with Glenn Weldon. Let's start it now on Word Balloon. Glenn Weldon, welcome back to Word Balloon. It's been a while, but uh, I'm glad you're back and back with a new book. Oh, thanks, man. It's great to be back. Uh, Congratulations. Another excellent, uh, not only study on another great superhero, but uh, also, uh, in this case, uh, a slightly different book. Why don't you explain? I mean, we're talking about the Cape Crusade, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture, and equally, the nerd culture and Batman are examined in this book. So tell tell us what your thoughts were uh, approaching this uh, volume as opposed to the uh, unauthorized Superman book from a while ago. Yeah, I mean, I had a, a lot of fun writing Superman, the unauthorized biography, but that was kind of work for hire. I mean, it was the 75th anniversary was coming up, and uh, I had an editor reach out to me saying, do you want to do this? So I did it, and uh, <laughs> I enjoyed it, but it is, um, you know, it was a strict chronology, because when you're doing a history of something, you're kind of locked into chronology, uh, which 
can uh, start to feel like you are writing a 300-page Wikipedia entry. It can feel <laughs> like you're doing a term paper. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. Uh, so when it came to this book, which I pitched, because I, I, you know, Batman's kind of my guy, I decided uh, that I wanted to try and widen out as much as possible, uh, because I do think he's useful uh, as, a, as a lens through which to look at nerd culture. Uh, so uh, that, that was... That was a chance to kind of widen out and, and, and talk about all the different iterations of Batman over the years and what they mean. Uh, that, was, that was something I was really looking forward to, because nerd culture, like any culture, is messy. It is not tidy. And things that happen in you know, 1939 influence things that happened in 1970. So you have to draw the through line. You have to kind of figure out... Uh, what stays in and what goes. Uh, when I turned in the Superman book, uh, I was asked for 75,000 words, and I turned in 130,000 words because I liked everything. I wanted to write about crypto a lot because I think crypto is awesome. I do, too. Yes. But uh, when it came time to this book, I realized that since I had a thesis, which is that this guy is uh, a lens onto nerd culture, then anything that didn't fit that thesis, anything that didn't serve that thesis, uh, just I just didn't have room for. So uh, I tried to find the through line, and uh, that meant that I couldn't spend six pages on Mogo the Bat Ape, though I wanted to spend six pages on Mogo the Bat Ape. I'm sorry but, you didn't. Uh, All right. <laughs> yeah, not this time. Not this time. Well, and also, it's that chicken and the egg kind of theory, which affected which, because I understand that there are touchstone moments in the writing and presentation of Batman, um, but then by the same token, uh, the pop culture might impact how Batman was interpreted. I mean, we can look at how do you see, uh, and we're just going to hodgepodge back and forth throughout the years and stuff. Let's start with 66, because I think it's, as you even point out in the book, a much maligned uh, moment with the Batman television show, and also uh, you uh, also describe how it impacts us at various ages, and I've been saying this as well for years, and I'm glad that someone else feels that way, and also put it in a book, because, uh, <laughs> no, I, I completely agree with this, but, you know, yeah, I mean, this was the time of pop art, and certainly, you know, I mean, so, you know, kind of in, you know, Liechtenstein was uh, uh, really in a shitty way, obviously, uh, taking a lot of uh, comic book panels and calling them pop art and not crediting or, or even cutting in any of the creators that would have probably appreciated a payday the way Liechtenstein got. But uh, yeah, how, how do you see pop art and Batman and, and the, the whole 66 craze? Well, pop art was cresting at that moment uh, in, the, in the years leading up to 66, and Andy Warhol had pretty much made his bones on uh, installations that featured Batman and Superman because the pop art movement valued things that it saw as cheap, slick, mass-produced, garishly colorful, and so comic books were kind of made for it. Uh, comic books and, and Campbell Soup cans were kind of made for the sure. pop art movement. And, uh, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. They kind of took advantage of people like Lichtenstein, uh, uh, took advantage of other folks, and Lichtenstein was lead among them. And when I went back and, and read some interviews and, and talked to some people who were uh, instrumental in bringing up that show, uh, you know, over and over again they say, you know, so I had to go and read some comic books, and so I felt embarrassed to doing it in public, so I went home, and if you can call it reading, I was used to high, more, more highfalutin fare. And this is a guy, this is William Dozier, the uh, producer, and we would now call him a showrunner of the show, uh, who, you know, I mean, he, he, he was so, he, he, he tried to put him out 
himself out there as Mr. Playhouse 90, but he was also the guy who brought us Dennis the Menace and Rod Brown of the Rocket Rangers. But there was something about comic books that just didn't uh, strike anybody. And, and this was not unique. This was, uh, they were trash. They were for children. They, mm-hmm. were, uh, they were beneath contempt because you wouldn't even give them a thought the second time of day. So the genius that uh, he and uh, Lorenzo Semple Jr. brought is that, okay, we're going to Take these comics of 1964 and 1965, the Batman comics, which were the new look comics, uh, uh, the new look Batman, the Carmen, Carmen Infantino and all those folks. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to assert them uh, as if every trope, every idea here is just like we're doing an Ibsen play. Uh, we're not going to wink. We're not going to mug. And, and, you know, a lot of misconceptions about the show have kind of hardened into uh, widely held misconceptions. People think that it's winking, that it's satire, and it's really not. It's doing something different. It is simply uh, laying out everything, and the, the joke, the humor comes from the fact that these very simplistic uh, kind of anodyne concepts uh, with with everything being labeled and big sound effects and very simple plots and absolute good versus, you know, I wouldn't call it evil. I would call it mischief, <laughs> larceny. That's the conflict. Uh, and, and you're right. Even reviewers of the time could key into the fact that uh, kids loved it because of the colors and the, and the pal zap. Sure. And the action. Ad- yep. And adults, uh, and they would turn around to see their adults their parents laughing at the show and not get it. And, and what I assert, and what is actually I found some evidence for uh, by looking at some fanzines at the time, is that kids love it, adults love it, teenagers hate it. Yep. Teenagers who, who value this, this character uh, see it as making fun of him, and they want him to be a badass. Even in 1966, you know, I talked to Mark Evanier and some other folks who, who felt like this Batman wasn't for them, even though the Batman that they were getting in the comics wasn't all that much different from the Batman on the television show. I mean, it was just sort of, uh, it wasn't, dealt with with such gravity, but, uh, you know, that, that lone adventure Batman of 1939 was long gone um, and completely forgotten. He would show up in reprints in the back of a Detective Comics now and then, but the, the Batman that existed then are, you know, I love those stories. They're, they're, they're whimsical, they're hugely imaginative, they are uh, just so goofy and fun, but there is no trace of this dark, brooding Batman that they claim uh, to have wanted. And I, I came across a story where Chuck Dixon, yes. who would go on to write lots and lots of Batman stories himself, uh, he's very proud of the fact that when somebody came into school, his best friend came into school wearing an Adam West Batman shirt, he slugged him because that's not my Batman. I mean, it, it, it's, it's str- I was frankly surprised, John. I was frankly surprised to see that, that that's not my Batman sentiment had such deep roots in nerd culture. And, like, I think that that moment where one nerd slugs another nerd it could be the very first recorded incident of nerd rage. <laughs> I understand. I also get... Because, yeah, I always say it's the three stages of Batman. It's the four-year-old stage. It's that. Now, I always pegged in more as an adolescent stage because yeah. because I think by late high school, early college, when you might still be in your late teens or your early 20s, you do see the humor. And it is, yeah. it is interesting because um, I know that uh, Dozier, uh, as you point out as well, tried to do the Green Hornet and played it completely straight and really played it as an action show. And yeah. it's and it's funny because I even had an argument with a couple of podcasters who all they saw was the two part Batman that Green Hornet and Cato guested on, 
And they're like, no, it was humor. And I'm like, no, it, it, no it's before. Really yeah, and it was before Encore and some of these other channels started rerunning it. And now they see it. And it's like, no, that was a straight up like crime detective show. And that, you know, fine. The detective pretended to be a criminal and had a mask on and had a kick ass sidekick that could fight a hell of a lot better than he could. But uh, and taking nothing away from Van Williams, I thought he was a fine Brit read. I think that oh, sure. that one season, I think, is a is a, a solid show. But um, yeah, I you know now it's weird because again now I know they're playing it straight, but like they were they weren't. You're still saying that they weren't doing it as a comedy. Oh yes, absolutely. That was where the okay. humor comes in. Right, the, that the it, was so yeah, yeah, it was so deadpan. Yeah, because it was so deadpan. The humor emerges from that fact that they're playing it sure. so straight. More straight than than Van Williams was playing it. More straight than yes. any of those guys were playing it because it's it would be so easy to take a comic book and simply adapt it. And if you adapt it, then you change it to fit the television format, right? And you make something like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea or Star Trek <laughs> or whatever. You make something that is a a, a typical action adventure show that that was all over the dial back then. They did something very different. They took the comic and basically just slapped it on the screen, but the tone is what gives it the humor. The tone sure. is is the is the fact that uh, and uh, you know in each uh, episode kind of aped the format of of a typical comic book, you know, and uh, everything and... returns Everything returns to status quo at the Definitely. end. Yes, that's 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 the power of that thing. That's the engine of the show. The uh, also another possible uh, influence to make Dozier interested in doing something with Batman. Uh, the old movie serials were playing at the uh, Playboy Mansion, right? Yeah, 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 and they were uh, being being attended by a lot of hipsters, by what we call hipsters now, but sure. like a lot of the Andy Warhol set, the pop art set, the uh, and people were and college kids, college kids would go get high and laugh their asses off because <laughs> those old serials are um, well, a racist and b, b yeah, unfortunately, very very goofy. Yeah, especially you're right, and especially. Uh, I want to say the 43 one had the uh, – uh, or the – was it the 49? Which one had uh, J. Carroll Nash's Dr. Daka? That was 43. Yeah, okay, was, okay, so uh, that was the Dr. original Dr. one. Dr. Daka, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and during the war, obviously, because, yeah, ba- the Batman and Robin one was 49. It was after the war. Yep. Uh, but, again, the and, and harsh for the time as far as racial stereotypes, but a lot of uh, big tropes came from uh, the serial. The Batcave came from the serial. Mm-hmm. The, the Grandfather Clock, right? Absolutely, yes. And in, in uh, we'll, we'll say defense, but I mean, what people went to uh, the movie theaters, what, what, what they went to serials for was to see a newsreel to reassure them that we were winning the war and to get their, you know, patriotic yayas out, to, 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 to see movies about, you know, flying leathernecks and, and GIs fighting the good fight. And so they adapted, they, they brought uh, a typical, hugely successful, by the way, a movie serial and, 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 made the villain uh, somebody that, that could feed into that kind of jingoistic fervor of the time. Did you watch a couple of weeks ago, Turner Classic Movies was representing him right before the opening of uh, Batman Superman? Oh, no, 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 I didn't. I didn't. I did go to see Batman Superman at an Alamo draft house out in Virginia, and oh. they did show a couple of those. And, uh, oof, yeah, and I, I had seen them to, to research yeah. the book you sure. know, a couple of years back. Well, and I want to get uh, you, you can't leave without talking a little bit about Batman Superman. We'll save that till the end. Let's let's go back to the beginning though, because Bob Kane, 
much maligned, uh, certainly invented his own folklore that is on his gravestone. One of the man, I'll tell you, I'm surprised that the uh, the the epitaph on the gravestone doesn't continue on the back of the gravestone because (laughs) it's like the Constitution, isn't it? It is. And every time I would think, okay, you're being a little, you're, you're taking an extra swipe at Bob Kane when you don't need to take a swipe at Bob Kane. I, I kept uh, a window of that gravestone open on my browser, and so I would just be like, yeah, no, screw him. No, no, no. <laughs> Let's keep that in. It is fascinating and infuriating. And who knows if he actually wrote that or if his family wrote that, whatever. But uh, the fact that remains, it's just a part of this willful attempt to erase Bill Finger's um, uh, contributions from history. And that's, you know, I talked a lot to Mark Tyler Nobleman. He's in D.C. too, so we'd meet, and he would. I gave him the first chapter to read just to make sure I wasn't going uh, too far. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was something. That guy was a piece of work. Mark is the attorney that's been working with a lot of the estates of these original creators and kind of helping them get their share, correct? Yeah, yes, and he wrote an amazing uh, all-ages book called, um, oh, God, I can't remember the name of the book. Oh, the, Bill, the, the Bill Finger uh, Kids book? Yeah, the Bill Finger Kids book. He also wrote that. That's awesome. And, I didn't realize that. That's very cool. I remember when that book came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and he's so I he's been doing the, the grunt work on this. He's been doing the, the all the legwork, so I, I kind of bounced it off him just to make sure I, was, I, I had a solid beat on it because, you know, I mean, and again, you know, you talk to... You talk to Stan Lee. These people, uh, these guys self-mythologize. They're in the business of making, you know, our modern mythology, so they self-mythologize. It's just comes with the territory, I suppose. But uh, that's why historians, I don't consider myself a historian. I consider myself a critic. That's why I default to... um, I'm, I'm very grateful to the actual historians who are really digging in and going through the papers and going through the archives and to really figure out uh, who should get credit for what, because that is hugely important in today's society, where credit is pretty much all these guys can get anymore. Yeah, it's it's kind of lousy. I, I don't know if you had a chance. I'm guessing not, because it had been a couple of years since he passed away. But uh, any contact with Jerry Robinson or no, the creator of Robin and the Joker? No, 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 I didn't uh, talk to him, because he had passed away when I got to that section of the book. But I did read, there's a really good uh, biography of him. Uh, yes. And I, yeah, and I kind of, uh, that really focuses on his work, uh, not doesn't focus on it, but it really features his work as somebody who also was going after, was going after, you know, creators' rights and creators' compensations. Absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah. yeah it's and he, played a, he played a huge role in getting, um, you know, uh, Siegel and Schuster, the, the the credit they deserved. Absolutely, so. that's where I was going. But it's better than yeah. you say it, Glenn, because you've done the. You see, that's the thing, man. We got the historians that are doing the really hard work, and then we got you, the critic, that's writing a book and everything, and doing your share research. And then yeah. you know, you got Jimmy Jerkoff over here, who's just like, yeah, I, I think I think I remember reading that in Amazing Heroes <laughs> thirty years ago. So I'm going to go are- with that. We are not so far <laughs> apart, my friend. We are, we are very close. No, no, it's all good. And and seriously, I you know I kick myself because I, I saw Jerry a few times at San Diego before he passed away, and it was one of those literally like running on empty. You know, uh, barely could afford to go to San Diego that year when it was my last opportunity to buy a Batman sketch for him, and they were like cheap. They were like a hundred bucks, and I'm like, why didn't I do it? And it's like, I know I didn't have the money, but it's like, oh missed opportunity to get an no, original absolutely. Batman from Jerry Robinson. 
I will say, and this is, uh, I've mentioned this elsewhere, but I mean, uh, I did start out this book trying to get everybody on tape that I could. And I talked to a lot of people at Comic-Con. I cornered people, basically. And so, you know, the the tape was lousy, but I got them on tape. And I'd go to start to transcribe it. And I'm not going to say who it was, but I I, I talked to this one old creator who's hugely involved in in this stuff. And uh, I was typing it out. Uh, By the way, transcribing is awful. I don't know how people Yeah, it is. (laughs) <laughs> it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible. And I'm also not, I, I say I'm not a historian, I'm not a journalist, because I can't ask the questions. I ask questions that haven't been answered before, but there's a thing about, and this happens to people of, of, of a certain age, regardless of even if they're trying to mythologize themselves, but at a certain point, their memory becomes the story they tell. Sure. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, so it's like uh, it was so weird. I, I got it back. I started typing it out, and then I, I remembered that I'd seen another interview with this guy. So I looked at it, and it was like I had pressed play in his on his brain, and he and it was almost literally word for word. And I wasn't getting anything new because you know then that's my fault because I don't know how to ask the questions. I'm not a journalist, but uh, that's why I decided I would focus this book as I had on the first one, not so much on what the what the writers and the creators and the artists thought they were writing and creating and, and doing art about, but what they had, what how it affected the culture, sure. how the fans saw it. I think that's, you know, that's, that's, kind of, that's, that's, what, that's what a critic can do uh, that uh, I think, or at least attempt to do. So that's what I felt was my role on this particular book as well. Well, you know, and, I, and I, it leads me to another section of the book that I think is slightly... I wouldn't. I don't want to use the word controversial, and certainly not from my standpoint, because I always. It's so weird, man. I always have to like. I end up having these conversations, and I start much like the generation before me, where I think I'm, you know, right-minded and on the right side of this. I consider myself a liberal, but we have. I'm interested because you really did. You went into the whole thing about Batman and Robin, the dynamic of the dynamic duo, and mm-hmm. and certainly the. Um, homosexual uh, relationship that Dr. Wortham, the seduction of the innocence author, uh, accused them of, but also the fact that, you know, there there are panels, there are moments that, you know, obviously do look like, hey, this doesn't look like a father-son relationship or an older brother-younger brother relationship. And, yeah. But, but I think, and in, in reading your book, too, that it really is in the hands of much like art should be in the person interpreting the art, the person, uh, the, the person who's consuming it, and and what they get from it. Absolutely. I mean, you talk to any of these creators, and they're going to say absolutely not. And in fact, uh, you can get <laughs> sure. Bill Finger, you can get, you can get, uh, you can see Bob Kane being asked the question and, and swatting it away. For really much is that true? Everybody... Is that on, is that on record of of Kane being asked the question? I think I certainly I certainly found evidence that Finger did, and I'm pretty sure. Well, I know because. <laughs> I know because Joe Schumacher said uh, that on the set of Batman, I think it was Batman, Batman and Robin, um, where he saw the earring, he saw the nipple suits, and he was like, "What is going on?" He, he was kind of, <laughs> he was such a company man. He was such a booster. They paid him a stipend to be like a, 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 an advisor to those movies, sure. and he just he would go out to the fans and say, "Nope, this is good. No, this he's the best Batman for each and every movie." I, I do remember he, that in the '90s, absolutely, man. Yeah. Yeah. And the only time that uh, he, he pushed back, even a little, the only evidence I could found that he ever pushed back was with the nipples and the earring. And the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So let's 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 uh, let's infer that uh, he would he was on record. But you know, pretty much every creator, every writer has said no. That's not what it's done. Devin Grayson said she can understand the gay readings, um, mm-hmm. and but the only one who is like Batman is very very gay is uh, Grant Morrison, of course. Because... In Super Gods, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, it was uh, always so, gay. Oh, you're kidding me. Absolutely. Going back to 39, I'm like, yeah, I know. I read that, too. And I'm like, hey, Grant, come on, man. Really? Well, I mean, this is the thing. Uh, <laughs> it's it, Whether or not it was intended, it doesn't matter. Because when it comes to comics, specifically to comics, uh, there are nonverbal cues that, again, not intended. Sure. But... But for people like me, a gay guy, who uh, doesn't see, historically, doesn't see representations of my life anywhere in popular culture until very recently. But think about the, the kids uh, who were reading this stuff back in the, in the 40s and 50s, uh, which was a, a rabidly homophobic time. And that is something that Wortham kind of had a point about. What he basically said was not that Batman and Robert are gay. He, what he said essentially was that seeing these two dudes in this mansion wearing the dressing gowns with the, <laughs> the giant flowers and large faces, mm-hmm. uh, all that stuff is going to make kids wonder about their own sexuality, question their own sexuality. Now, he, is, he had a point. He didn't have the point that he thought he did. No straight kid is going to look at that and think, oh, what's going on here? <laughs> but I put it to you, John, that every single gay kid is going to be like, hmm, what's, what's going on here? Sure. Because, it, because, again, we don't see representations of ourselves. Straight people see representations of themselves in everything so much that they cease to register as representations. It's just comics. It's just movies. It's just TV. We got, uh, gay, gay people, queer people see, do not see that. And, in fact, we see worlds, especially in the case of superhero comics, historically, especially in the 40s and 50s, where not only don't we we see ourselves, but it's a world in which we absolutely do not exist. So when when presented with that, all we do is we just look deeper uh, to make connections that are not intended but can be found. Because the thing about comics is that they are literally subtextual. There is text, but then there is imagery. Imagery is what matters here. Absolutely. Uh, Body language, uh, background detail, all that stuff can be plumbed and connections made. And yes, it's unfair to pull one panel out of context. It's basically, it's, it's, it was Wortham's, you know, modus operandi. It's what a lot of people on Tumblr do every, every day. Absolutely. absolutely. Day, just pulling individual <laughs> panels. It's not, you know, fair if, if, oh. if you are so determined to, uh, to hold on to, you know, this, the, the, the notion that the, everything's totally fine. But it's, it's, I didn't make it up. Nobody made this up. It's I hear you there. there. It's there. It's part, of the, it's part of the rich pageant that is this character. Well, and, and to be honest, I mean, that's the thing that even now as, as an adult Nightwing, I hear men and women both say, Dick Grayson, nice butt. You know, yeah, I mean, absolutely. and it's and it's like I get it, and it's like, all right, good for you. Yeah. That's great. And seriously, that, you're right. And honestly, that's excellent. That it, that even in that small way, they can find something to relate to. So that's really, I you know, I mean, but that's that's the thing. I I do. I still find the discussion interesting, and I do appreciate both sides of it. So that's the thing. I'm certainly not a hey, wait a minute. But yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. I <laughs> mean, it's, it's, I'm not going to insist that they are, and uh, as long as nobody insists that they aren't, I right. mean, because because the idea is to me they are, or they might be, or, or they could be. To you, they are. They aren't, or they are. They could be. This is the the fandom gets better. The imagery, the yes. the, the art gets better. The comics get True. better when they become less monolithic. When the values that are being asserted are not just 
values that, that matter to one small subset of the population, but we can all see ourselves. Representation, you know, is step one, but it's, it's a step. <laughs> and it's, sure. it's, it, these, these things have to speak to everybody, um, uh, and uh, they can do that without uh, denigrating or, or, or not speaking to other people. It's, it's just uh, these things work on an emotional, uh, basic Preverbal level. That's that's why I mean, that's why we're not. These, this isn't prose where we have to kind of intellectualize and picture. This is imagery where we can kind of see. Uh, and you know, there's a large part of the power of these images. The power of these characters is how they look. Not only the fact that they are you know jacked, but the, their color schemes, their design, their sure. it's it's all it's all a very um, basic elemental. Um, you know, and this, this is what this is why we we sometimes I think some of us take this whole they're the mythology of today a little bit too far. But I mean, there's a basic truth to that. Well, and also you you point out in another section too that Batman is kind of the ink blot that everyone can look at and interpret in in their own way, and that's why not only from a sexual standpoint but also social mores, and you know, at times he's the he's the friendly. Uh, duly deputized agent of the law, as uh, Adam West would say, uh, mm-hmm. and then other times he's the he's the outlaw vigilante that uh, Frank Miller brought back in you know in the Dark Knight interpretation. So yep. you know, I also um, you I think had the best answer because the other the other interesting question regarding the nerd culture and comics in general, it's like why do we still love this shit as adults? And I'm slightly older than you. Maybe a lot older than you, but I think regardless, I think uh, you got Scott Ackerman to give to. That's the best answer I've heard, and it didn't occur to me until I read that in your book. And if you don't mind sharing that, well, he basically said, you know, I, I asked everybody, what, why is nerd culture now the <clears throat> the dominant culture? What's happened? Why all of a sudden? What's happened? And you know, it, you get because this is cultures are messy things. Uh, you get different answers depending on who you talk to. The families I talk to are just like, well, we'll come to Comic Con every year. This is just part of what we do, you know, um, sure. my my family had, you know, Monopoly and Uno and Clue, and their family has, you know, Joss Whedon's Firefly and Munchkin. You know, it's it's just, it's it's different. And then I talked to every pro I talked to, to a person, basically said, now um, people understand the why, why we love comics so much, <clears throat> excuse me, because movies can capture comic book spectacle in a way that they couldn't before, and now that barrier to entry, because... There was a stigma associated with comics. Uh, now that stigma is dissolving, or, or at least the, st- uh, the, the st- stigma to the stories that are told, the stigma to the format might mm-hmm. still be there, but the, the stigma to the, uh, to, the, to the stories that are encased in them uh, has gone away, and now they're mainstream. But when I talked to Ackerman, he said, basically, we didn't have – my generation didn't have a war. We didn't yeah. have a draft. So we didn't fear for our lives. We didn't ever go. Uh, we didn't, you know, ever have any kind of introspection. What we had instead was uh, this. Instead of this feeling of self-preservation, uh, we directed it toward this comic book, that TV show, that movie. That's where we kind of direct our our passion, and that's what nerd culture is essentially about. It's about this passion. The thing I love about it is that it uh, explicitly rejects irony because i grew up i don't know i don't know about you but i grew up in the age of letterman absolutely which was which is all about reflexive irony uh cool not trying too hard uh making sure <laughs> everybody knew that that you were that everything was funny and that everything it was yeah, and that you were too uh cool for everything nerd culture 
rejects that completely by being, because those passions are completely sincere. Um, they are not, uh, you know, reflexive. And, uh, they are reflexive, but they're not um, reflection. They, they, you don't. You don't sort of. What do I like a lot? That's not a question you ask yourself. You just love it. The problem is, is that that uh, that passion can curdle very quickly when it is motivated by a need to share with others. When you say this thing I love, I want to tell you about it. Look at this. Look at this comic. Look at this record. Uh, here's some. Here's some wine that I really like. When, when, whatever you're passionate about. Uh, if you want to share it, then uh, then nerd culture is a positive, inclusive, wonderful place. There is something about passion, though, that tends to obliterate nuance. It obliterates discussion, and it pushes things to either side of a spectrum, where my thing is the best and your thing is the worst. And when that happens, we start to not want to share our thing, but we basically become nerd hipsters, where we think that our thing is the best, and that if you try to, uh, if you don't like it for exactly the same reasons that I do, then you're doing it wrong. And that's where a lot of this toxic bullshit comes in, because there is a feeling of uh, entitlement, of uh, I was here first, of um, you don't understand this thing, you fake geek girl, Uh, all all that crap comes from this same place of passion. Uh, And, you know, I'm I'm writing a piece now where I'm trying to figure out what happens next. Now that uh, nerd culture has become culture, are we raising a generation of kids who don't feel victimized because they like D&D, who don't feel shunned because they like superheroes or comic books? And if that's true, uh, will then they grow up without that feeling of... Um, that feeling of being oppressed, that feeling of resentment, that feeling of, you know, uh, the jocks, the popular kids, uh, I screw them. So do we then... Are, what, are we, what are we raising then if we're not raising nerds? This is... These are um, questions to which I don't have answers, but I'm kind of bouncing them off you because I'd like you to tell me. No, I agree, and I and I don't have the answer either because I think, unfortunately, we're going to have to wait till the picture develops to put it in Polaroid uh, metaphor. Because yeah. you know that's the thing. Justin Gray, the co-writer with Jimmy Palmiotti on sure. Jonah Hex and so many excellent uh, original creations between them, last night on Twitter was like, you know, um, let's remind everyone that this crossover from superheroes to other media has about uh, 10 years left and then it's done. And I'm like, based on what? Because I think we're in new territory. I understand that fads come and go, but all we have to do is point to the Western that pretty much lasted for about 75 years, from the silent era to about the mid-70s, and then had a resurgence again in the 80s. So that's the thing. I really think we're in... Like you, I mean, to to also add more baggage to what you're suggesting. I mean, that's the thing. There are so many outlets as opposed to the three channel or five channel era of the you know 50s through the 80s, the pre cable era, where you can watch these things. Certainly, the internet has opened that, and you can feel good about what you like and find a community, if not next door, then certainly online that shares right. these passions. I don't know what this that's going to happen, and that's why even with a movie like Batman Superman that I find incredibly polarizing, and we're going to get to that in a second. Yeah, there's no, there's no right answer, and that's what, that's what I'm looking at right now is this immediate month as this movie plummets after the initial great opening that everyone was patting themselves on the back for. But I'm like, yeah, let's see how word of mouth plays out because it's, it's interesting because there's as many people 
that I know that I would have thought, oh my God, you're going to hate this movie, that love it, as do hate it. And, I, and, yeah. I'm, and I'm shocked. I'll admit I was disappointed. And, agree, yeah. and I try to put, separate myself, as you say, too, and not be like, well, you clearly don't understand Batman or whatever. I, you know, and, and I think these characters are absolutely unbreakable. They're open to different interpretations. But, you know, I can't deny I didn't like the movie because I felt it was joyless. So Yeah, well, see, that's the thing. Okay, so I totally agree with you about that superheroes are a genre. And like any other genre, they're going to cycle in and out of popularity. There's going to be good examples and bad examples. Yep. Uh, they are they are exactly when i when i talk about this i talk about westerns i talk about slasher films i talk about rom coms sure. they go in yeah. and out it's part of the deal they're just uh, a thing the difference i think is that uh we are getting from one company uh, a very monolithic take we are getting a the same tone over and over and over again and i don't want to de- devolve to marvel versus dc but we can there is something here Marvel understands that these are different characters that must be dealt with in a different tone. You can't do Captain America Winter Soldier in the same way that you do Ant-Man because they're different characters and they are different uh they demand different approaches. Absolutely. Superman and Batman are not the same character. That's you right. cannot have um you cannot bring a grim besot, uh, like dour joyless um, pseudo philosophical take on on uh, on Superman that may have worked for three films or two and a half films with Batman uh, because there's a resonance with that there's there's a long history of grim brooding you know um, takes on the things like the surveillance state things like the uh, like terrorism that there's there's a history there it's part of the that character's DNA it's not with Superman Superman is a, is is intended is a creature of hope. Not not uh, dour um, joylessness. A film, and here's where here's where you, you, we'll get to Batman versus Superman. Uh, I don't want to go to see a film that is basically about a flying spaceman and a billionaire ninja detective, <laughs> which is about the futility of virtue, the futility of hope, the futility of trying to do the right thing. Uh, that seems to me like you are just missing the characters. Again, I talked to a lot of Batman fans for this book, uh, and they all said, I like Batman more than Superman because he's relatable. Uh, and I talk about mm-hmm. that at a certain amount of extent in the book. Yes, you do. Yeah. I, I talk, I, uh, and I, I try to kind of put some, I poke some holes in that theory because I think it's not really his relatability. I think it's, I think it's his oath. I think it's this idea of obsession. I think that's what resonates with nerds in a, in a big way. Um, I also think that there's a tendency to focus <clears throat> on the, the fact that he's a badass, uh, on the rage that totally misses the hope that is implicit in this character. The hope is he is going to put himself, he put his body between harm coming to anybody else. Um, in that sense, he's a lot more like Superman than, than he isn't, because he is dedicating himself to the proposition of never again. I'm going to keep this. I'm going to keep what happened to me from happening to anybody else just by punching crime in the face a lot. That is a very. Um, it's a it's a weird kind of hope. It's not necessarily a, a realistic hope, but that's its power. Because again, who came up with it? A, a child in his, in a lonely bedroom by candlelight swore an oath in 1939 uh, to to dedicate the rest of his life warring on all criminals. That has an elemental, pre-verbal, simple power that that you 
that if you just focus on the car and the spectacle and the explosions, if you make uh, a movie that is essentially an image comic come to life, a 90s image comic come to life, then you're missing, you're missing who this guy is. And it's, you know, it's funny. I, I really do think Affleck was a lot. And I wasn't one of those. I honestly wasn't one of those people that are like, Affleck is Batman. I'm like, no, I think he can do it. And I think he had flashes of true Batman moments, certainly as Bruce Wayne in those opening scenes. When, and it's in the trailer. So if you haven't seen it, I'm not spoiling. But, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, that, you know, when he's rushing to the Wayne building as it's collapsing and trying to save people. Um, mm-hmm. You know that's a very Batman moment, and I and I really think that he had several of those in the movie. And and like you say too, there's this contrast of Batman and Superman that usually plays itself out in the in the books, in the movies, uh, in the t- you know. Well, actually, I can't think of a time in TV. Although radio, and I'm glad you point out on the old radio show, uh, yeah. Batman and Robin would show up a lot. And uh, well, they were chums. They were best of friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing, man. And, you know, I grew up in the, you know, my, my decade was the 70s as far as being a kid. And so I grew up with those 80-page giants and 100-page spectaculars when sure. they would reprint those great stories that, you know, came from World Finest. And, you know, you had Kurt Swan art or Dick Sprang art, and they were absolutely best of best friends. And, hey, this is great. You do what I do. Okay, fine. Let's do it together. Sounds great. Yeah, and, <laughs> and even in the 70s, in, in those issues of World's Finest, where Gotham City was across the bay from... Um, was it really? There was, a, there, there was a bridge that connected them, yeah. Um, you know, they would go, they'd visit each other all the time, and they'd hang out. No, they had different approaches. They had different outlooks. They didn't always agree, but they weren't coming to blows. That was a thing that uh, kind of, um, very frankly, Frank Miller turned up to 11. Uh, yeah. And John Byrne after him. They kind of, that's when you get this... We want we want the same thing, but we go about it in very different ways. I remember reading that last World's Finest that either happened before Man of Steel or Dark Knight, uh, or even Batman Year One, because it was around. It was right before Crisis or right after Crisis, and there it really was this kind of one issue, both of them kind of showing up and disagreeing on how they were going to approach whatever the problem was. And Batman swings off, and Superman kind of watches him, and yeah, it's this kind of unresolved disagreement. That you're, yeah. and I just remember thinking, oh man, that's too bad. Because again, I had grown up for, you know, about fifteen years enjoying these these good friends. That even the Super Sons, they were they were on the yeah, same page. The Super Sons, who, who can't love the Super Sons, man? Uh, I put them in the Superman book, but I, there was no room for them in the Batman book because they were just way too goofy. But yes, I, I, I love the Super Sons. Uh, and actually, in Batman and the Outsiders, he forms the Outsiders because he doesn't agree with uh, the, the way the JLA and Superman yeah. is, is running things. He becomes moodier and moodier. Uh, after Dick leaves, and he he goes back to being the sort of lone Avenger of the night, and he gets progressively, uh, you know, dour and bitchier over the course of the late seventies and early eighties until Crisis, when it all uh, turns around, and and we get, you know, we get Dark Knight Returns, and this longing, which I touched on the book, the longing of the people who are reading the regular Batman series to have that somehow connect to bring Dark Knight Returns into continuity. And so when they got the chance by killing off uh, Jason Todd, they jumped at it. This is true. Yes, the, the famous uh, 900 number to kill or not kill Robin. Uh, yep. you're, you're right about that. Isn't it interesting, though, because, again, this goes back to does the uh, the culture is pushing Batman a certain way? Because while those Frank Miller stories were happening, you did have Mike Barr 
a very yeah. capable Batman writer writing not only a friendlier Batman, a Batman who smiled. I remember that yep. Detective – I think it was Detective 400 or 500 where Sherlock Holmes showed up at 120 years old or however old they uh, – I remember that too. There yeah. you go. And, and you know, and uh, Batman offers to light – Holmes's pipe and he's and he's smiling when he's doing it and and Holmes is like oh thanks it's the the pipes for show I I don't smoke anymore and it yeah. was you know and it's just I haven't had a chance to talk to Mike Barr but I mean that's the thing man I mean you had a lot even um even uh, Denny O'Neill and, and Neil Adams are, are given so, and as you properly document in the book given so much credit of bringing us back the darker Batman you still had other guys writing and drawing Batman that. Like I said, yeah, it was still – it was kind of a – you know, there wasn't – not an inconsistency, but there was, I guess, a, a different tone. On yeah, how you, yeah, how you, you, would get, you would get Kite Man. You'd get, all, sure. you'd get basically the return of the costume foes because everything about this character cycles. It's not like Superman, which I – you know, I charted a certain steady evolution to kind of speak to the zeitgeist in different ways. Uh, this guy cycles from light to dark, light to dark, from being a lone, prote- lone avenger to being a protector and father figure to Robin to being the head of this huge coterie of bat-themed, uh, you know, apprentices. Oh God, back, yeah. back to being uh, the the lone avenger. It's it's a cycle. They they kind of line up the light to dark, light to dark, and that three thing cycle of Lone Avenger to everything, but they don't always. But um, yeah, it's the the culture really. Well, the nerds, you know, grim and gritty happened uh, in response. It was Watchmen. It was Killing Joke. It was Dark Knight Returns. This is what there is a need uh, on the nerds, traditional bat nerds part, to have their character, have this character that they love, taken capital S seriously. And the the problem is when we define that too narrowly when we when we when we equate seriously with violent uh joyless and and um, you know badass that's there's you can take a character seriously and still have humor you can take a character seriously and still have some measure of hope and have him be an ideal that we strive to achieve um and uh yeah and so they came up with uh, the character of Azrael in part as a comment on the the bleak, nihilistic, you know, accoutrements heavy, uh, thigh strap, you know, ammo belt kind of kind of things that was happening in the '90s, and they feared that uh, because they wanted to have a contrast, they wanted to show that Batman was still a guy who would not kill and he would not maim and torture, uh, that he was a hero. So they had Azrael come along to be a guy who would just reject that code, and they were hoping that people wouldn't glom onto him, and people glommed onto him because it was the 90s, and that's what people wanted. So bringing him back, bringing Batman back, was a, a long, slow road that was a little bit slower than I think they had originally planned because they wanted to get to milk everything they could out of Azrael. Yeah, did you have ch- a chance to talk to the people about Nightfall and uh, Night Quest and what led to uh, Batman reclaiming the mantle after Azrael had taken it over and, and kind of perverted it and everything? I mean, well, uh, O'Neill has basically said, yeah, our fear was that he would be. We wanted to offer him as this, uh, as this, as this example of what was going on in, in the books in the 90s, mm-hmm. and uh, our fear was that people would uh, embrace him, and they did embrace him. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I, yeah. I read. You know, that's that's kind of when I checked out. Was right that's exactly after when I checked out. Yeah, I, well, and I mean, I stuck with the story till it was over. And I even read uh, Prodigal, which was mm-hmm. Dick Grayson taking the costume after Bruce was back, but not quite ready to be Batman yet again. Yep. Um, 
So and then yeah, after that I was like, all right, I'll see you. And and then it really was the Bendises and the Brubakers and the Ruckas that kind of brought me back to comics. And really, uh, No Man's Land. The, yeah, the, absolutely. You know, yeah, what a great story. And in fact, I read Rucka's novelization before I came back to comics. I was on a trip to New York and at mm-hmm. O'Hare Airport and saw this Batman novel. And I read the back cover and I'm like, well, this sounds like a cool story. Holy shit. Yeah. And it was. I mean, this was this great, epic, you know, kind of uh, wonderful story that happened after Contagion in 1999. And, you know, yeah, it set up this really interesting status quo of what if Gotham is this kind of just sealed off place where the crazies are, are left and everyone's fending for themselves. Yeah, and I, I'm not alone in this. I mean, uh, this is by no means a unique uh, outlook, but I did love the animated series a lot because oh, yeah. I think it kind of reduces the character to his essence. It doesn't dump a lot of stuff on top of him. doesn't do what the what the, what the Nolan films, what the, the Schumacher films, what the uh, Burton films did, which is just kind of use Batman to tell the story according to that director's you know outlook. They, this these each each and every one of these were Batman stories. Batman as he is uh, at his essence, and consequently, I think I remember just being dispirited by all comics in the 90s. The only comics I kept buying were the uh, animated series uh, adaptions, because those were, A, all ages, which you didn't have in the 90s, B, uh, done-in-one stories uh, that were incredibly tight, concise, simple, uh, and some of the most uh, mature, not mature as in like sexual content, but like like not adolescent <laughs> yeah. Batman stories on the shelves. Similarly, uh, when the thing that brought me back uh, was A, how Batman was portrayed in Grant Morrison's JLA as the master uh, strategist, the master uh, guy with contingency plans, with the contingency plans. And then really it was uh, Gotham Central, a, yeah. a, a fantastic... Uh, you know, you can do gritty, you can do grim, and still have it be fantastic if you care about character more than spectacle, if you care about storytelling more than uh, just having people grimace at each other and full-page splash panels, you know, uh, over as they stand over rubble. I mean, that's... Uh, Gotham Central was about storytelling, was about using the comics medium to do what it can do, which is tell a, a story that isn't just about... Um, you know, two two people in tights beating each other up, but but actually, the people around this thing, how how uh, a character like this would affect the world around him, it was a really smart uh, thing. Some of my favorite uh, comics of all time. I agree with you on that, and it, it's kind of one of the things I like Gotham. I don't love it, and it is mm-hmm. because it leans more towards Tim Burton and less away from Gotham Central. I couldn't agree more, and I think it would have been better served if it really was more of a straight up police procedural without the whack. I mean, with the with the with the rose gallery, I don't mind that because that was for some of the fun of Gotham Central. How does yeah. the police department handle this when Batman isn't there? And yeah, how to, and, you know, so, yeah. And oh God, even as like dead Robin, the 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 story where, you know, a, a dead body shows up in a Robin suit and they're not sure if it's really Robin or not. And just that or the sniper story with Joker. What a what a chilling yeah. story and a very realistic one. You know, I haven't read Paul Dini's uh, realistic Batman story uh, yet. Have, has it come out yet? I don't even know if it's uh, um, I don't know. I don't know. Did you talk? We and again, maybe you didn't. It might not have even been known that he was like thinking about this story because I know it's been percolating. And for people who don't know, I'm sure they do. Uh, Dini was uh, mugged and really beaten up 
And this was while he was working on the animated series. And he has a new book that's coming out soon, a graphic novel that really does kind of deal with his own, you know, the aftermath of that and how it really messed him up for a while. And especially trying to come back and write about a guy that could write those kinds of wrongs that obviously wasn't there in the real world for him. And just, you know, yeah, it messed him up. It's sad. I mean, a great interview that he did with Kevin Smith uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, Yeah, I did hear that. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. But, um, you know, yeah, that's my thing with Gotham is it's still like I said, and I like the Tim Burton stuff, but it is it, it's still it's still got a little too much cheese. And I would have been happier with a little more grounded series. But that's OK. You know, whatever. Again, I think these things are indestructible. In fact, as bad as Batman Superman did or is has been received, um, you know, I think people realize because even today, as we're talking, there are rumors that. Uh, they might tweak their, uh, you know, following superhero films. Certainly, uh, we heard Suicide Squad is getting a few more comedic uh, scenes uh, added to it and everything to lighten the tone. So I, I think the powers that be are listening. But I know there was always that fear that whenever something was done wrong, it's like, oh, well, that's going to screw the franchise. And I'm like, yeah, no, nah, I don't think more than three years. And two of them is making the new movie that will correct anything that's gone wrong. And I feel that way about Batman Superman. I don't know how you feel about it. Well, yeah, yeah, I think they are always uh, correcting the the last film, um, and that's not necessarily a strategy. Um, you know, because sure. I remember after the Nolan films did so well, and they tried. Well, they, I think it was Superman Returns comes out, uh, and and it doesn't do well. They think to themselves, okay, what we need to do is what Nolan did. What we need to do here is make make a Superman film that's grounded and dark and morose and. Man, that's just uh, dispiriting. So, <laughs> well, and again, they doubled down with this movie. I totally and, did. And and you know, okay. I mean, again, it's still the first month. Um, it, you know, my buddy Tim Byers, who uh, analyzes mm-hmm. this stuff, was like, "Let's talk, man. Let's talk right away." I'm like, "No, man. Let's wait till the first month and really see what kind of trajectory this movie does." And you know, certainly, we've heard that it wasn't well received in China. Uh, but you know, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a big, that's a big uh, financial uh, part of the package these days, yeah. you know? So yeah, it's a very, very interesting times, man. And, uh, I think, uh, the good news is there is always good Batman product to reach for, uh, when a, a movie or whatever disappoints. And, you know, those of us that love comics and books and things like that, that can, can just do that and, and be like, all right, well, you know, again, I, I, I how'd you feel about Affleck as Batman? Oh, you know, he's fine. Um, uh, he wasn't given much to do yes. except glower, uh, uh, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, and Cavill wasn't given much to do except no. glower. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the deal. Yeah, I agree on both, on, on really all the actors' uh, accounts. It wasn't their fault. And if anything, too, um, I, I saw enough in, in, uh, Affleck's performance and I'm like, all right, I'd like to see a Batman movie with Affleck and, hopefully directed by somebody else and someone that, you know, can put a little more humor and a, a bit more balance to it. But, I, I, you know, I whatever. And, and maybe take the gun away from Batman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's the thing. But that's been a thing from the beginning. There was, there was a... There were guns. There were machine guns on the... Um, on, on, uh, the Bat Gyro? On the Bat... Well, yeah, certainly on the Bat Gyro. But, I mean, there, there were guns in uh, Burton's... On Burton's Batmobile. That's like, true. okay. 
And you can wave it away by saying rubber bullets, but he did kill a few dudes. So, you know, it's just uh, because, again, I have a whole thing about this in the book about how uh, superheroes are not action movie heroes. When you try to make them action movie heroes, you satisfy the action movie going audience because we like to see, you know, we like to get our yayas out. We like to see the the evil villain punished, but you can't. You you distort them. You have to keep them not killing people. You have to keep them uh, inspiring hope. Even if it's hokey, you, you, if you want to write a Batman story, you have to kind of keep to the genre constraints because that's where creativity comes in. You know, within those genre constraints, you can do a lot of different things. But to try to map a superhero story onto an action movie story means giving it the, the typical action movie structure with a big stupid explosion at the, at the, in the third act where everything that happened in the first act has to come back. So you have to turn the person who kills Bruce Wayne's parents into the Joker. That's just dumb because that's a that's a fundamental misread of who the character is because the whole thing about him is that it's a caped crusade it's not a caped vendetta it goes it it opens out into the world it's larger than him he is not looking for joe chill he is looking he is looking out for everybody he is trying to stop crime so it's um it it, it always is dispiriting new but i understand it's just you know there's there are nerds and there are normals. Nerds love adventures, endless adventures. And normals want, tell me a story. Give yeah. me a beginning, middle, and the end, and let me, let me get out of here. Yeah, yeah, I want to see the end. Exactly. No, I get it. And you're right about that. It was, it was heartening, though, several of my non-nerd friends going, I thought Batman doesn't like guns. I'm like, yes, you're right. Well, then why yeah. did he have one? I don't know. You're going to have yeah. to ask. <laughs> and especially, I mean, I, you know, Zack Snyder's body of work, when you look at it, all these films, they look, and I, and I don't mean this in a rude way, they do look the same. There's a dreariness about them. There is a hopelessness that, honestly, I liked Watchmen because it fit the story. The, joy, the yeah. hopelessness, it was the superhero hangover. That's the point yeah. of Watchmen, you I, know? No, thanks. Oh, sorry about that. Oh, not at uh, all. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, uh, that. no, and uh, yeah, I was just saying that, you know, that was, that's the point of Watchmen and stuff. But David Goyer is the guy who surprised me. You yeah, know, I mean, because it's like David Goyer has written excellent Batman and Superman stories, and that's why it's like, all right, I, I you know, I'm, I, I guess, you know, maybe because director has final cut, maybe it's you know Zach who ultimately won, or I, I don't really know. Yeah, it's uh, it, it it's so much of this franchise stuff. I mean, I'll, I'll dispute with you a little bit on on Watchmen because I think what he did with that slow motion. Uh, uh, camera tricks mm-hmm. was turned these essentially pathetic, screwed up um, psychopaths into badass heroes. So when you have a fight scene and you slow everything down so everything looks awesome, you're missing the point. I mean, I'm going to say what everybody else what, what everybody else said, which is that that moment where he actually interpreted the, the book, uh, that prologue where he he added something is actually the by far the most interesting part of that film because everything else is just almost verbatim, shot for shot, sure. except he got the tone wrong, except we're not meant to admire these people. We're meant to think that they're deeply, deeply screwed up. And uh, that just doesn't, it just doesn't come through. Uh, but, I can appreciate uh, that. And you're right about the prologue. To the yeah, D- it was great. Dylan's times, they are changing. Oh, oh my God, yeah. that's a, And it's so funny because literally I saw a uh, a screening of Batman Superman a few days before the opening. And mm-hmm. uh, and and the next night, Watchmen was running on Spike or whatever. And yeah, I just happened to catch that opening. And I'm like, you know, this is a better movie than, you know, I think or whatever. And again, it was that part of the movie that, that really, I think, weighed heavily on me and in a good way. 
and yeah, you know only, reminded me how much I liked it. Yeah, it's the only part where he departs from the from the text to do anything that you know a director's supposed to do. Sure. Yeah. Well, it, <laughs> yeah. yes, reinterpret and 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 you know, yeah, have have some something else to say beyond the original presentation. Although I got to admit, Sin City, I really enjoyed the way Rodriguez. You know, it's it's um. You know, he just he just decided, okay, I'm going to make a movie and put himself in this, you know, slightly, you know, two color box sure. and, and and allowed himself to shoot a film that way. And, you know, people who were like, I was surprised. Sin City 2, I think, should have done better. I think it was mismarketed. And it could have been as simple as, did you like Sin City? Well, here's yeah. more. Because it was. Yeah. It was it was a continuation in, a, in the best way, I thought. The only thing that didn't work for me was Josh Brolin uh, as uh, – and I forget the character's name now, but uh, the right. Clive Owen's character. Right. Wait, was there a third one? There wasn't a third one. Was no, there? not yet. Not. Yet. I mean, uh, and okay. I and I don't know if based on the you know low performance of two, that maybe yeah. there won't be a three. But yeah, I I honestly, like I said, I, did you see two? Didn't see two because I thought it was the third one. <laughs> I again, this this we're, we're yeah, I, I I like a difference of tone. No, I mean this is this is what that that tone is made for that story, right? I mean this is it's a it's noir pastiche. It's it's intended to be noir pastiche, so it does what it does. It's just between that and the spirit and the thing, it just all felt uh, of a piece. Understood. Now, as we wrap up, I want to uh, you know let you promote, of course, because you're on a you're on an excellent podcast yourself through NPR. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, every week I'm on uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour, which is a roundtable discussion, usually of stuff that has just happened that week. We try to uh, time it. It's, um, it's a lot of fun. And uh, I've been doing that for, oh, boy. Uh, How many years now? Six years now. It's nice. nothing like you, but still. Nah, that's good. Six years is good. And, no, it's a good conversation always. Uh, what was the consensus? I didn't listen to the Batman Superman review. Uh, the consensus was unfortunately uh, not not. We tried to get off of it as soon as we could because ha! we just don't we just don't want to sit around and, and bitch. moan and win. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was it was we were pretty much all on the same page. Uh, unfortunately, because I do like I think the conversation gets more interesting when somebody disagrees. I was counting on uh, my pal Chris Klimek to to run to the bar- barricades and defend, but uh, nope. <laughs> I was I was shocked on. Uh, uh, you know, some of the guys that I uh, podcast with, Art and Franco, the Tiny Titans uh, yeah. creators, they loved or they didn't, they didn't loved it. They they liked it. They liked yeah. the movie. And they both didn't like Man of Steel. And especially Art Baltazar, who right. honestly really gets Superman. I mean, and really, yeah. it, it drives me nuts that DC doesn't give him a shot to, to write a more adult story because he really gets the essence of Superman. And, yeah. and, and he was just like, I loved it. And I'm like, really? And he goes, I kind of did. And he goes, I'm going to see it again to make sure. But, yeah, he goes, I really had a good time. And he goes, you know, the little things didn't bother him. And he's just like, no, I, you know, I think the spectacle was enough for him, I guess. But it's interesting. Jimmy Palmiotti wrote a positive review. And, I mean, that's the thing. A lot of people that I really respect their opinions. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. Again, I'm not, I'm not judging, but it's like I, no, I, sure. that's even more fascinating that it is this kind of polarizing film that has gotten these mixed reviews. These, the whole point of the book, John, is that there's all these different versions of the characters Indeed. out there. There's a, char- there's a version of these characters for you. I do tend to map people who liked this movie with people who were 12 and 13 in the 90s when Image Comics and the death of Superman and all that stuff was happening. True. Because that's 
pretty much this. I mean, the, the, yeah. the presence of Doomsday in this film was like, yep, okay, I see what's going on here. Not for Glenn's. This movie is not going to be for Glenn's. Well, and, you know, honestly, I, I think people do know, so I'm not going to feel bad about spoiling. I don't know why... I thought eventually we would get to the death of Superman. I didn't think it would happen immediately in this film. I thought much like the story that played out in the comics, we'd see Doomsday, maybe see the Justice League try to beat Doomsday as a team and fail. And ultimately, like in the comics, Superman's going to have to do this himself. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing. It's like, good Christ, it's the second movie and he's dead? Yeah. What the <laughs> hell is going on? Good Christ. <laughs> Am I, you know, and you're there, you're laughing too because, yeah, it just – and and that's why I don't want to like and again this is the, the kind of thing you talk about in the book as you say I I don't mean to judge but it's like I I do it's like I wonder yeah what do you like about Superman that's my question that's what I would ask Zack Snyder is what do you like about Superman Be, and and I really love to I, I don't know I I just don't know if that if that answer how he um, answer it I don't know if if you come at at him, saying that he doesn't fit with the times, we have to change him to fit with the times, instead of <laughs> find a resonance between him and the times, yes. and, and make him an example, make him a hero, because, I mean, again, the, the, the film was about the futility of being a hero, which is, um, you know, there's, you could argue that that's realistic, I would argue that that's uh, nihilistic and depressing, and um, it's not what I go to my Flying Spaceman movies for. And also, yeah, I mean, I was as people were worried about the R-rated version that's going to eventually wind up on DVD and saying, how can you make us a, a movie that kids can't see with Superman? And I'm like, well, maybe he's Galahad surrounded yeah. by the absolute worst world in the world. But his hope and brightness will still carry him through. Let's see the movie. And then we saw yeah. the movie. And then we saw the movie, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, when when Affleck said, "Yeah, I'm not going to take my kid to see it," it's like, okay, well, I mean, <laughs> you're not you're not going to take your kid to see it. This is a movie about a guy from Krypton and a, a guy in a bat suit, and you're like, no, I think it's too adult. <laughs> <laughs> and therein lies the paradox of uh, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture in the Cape Crusade. By, Nicely done by Glenn Weldon. Hey, see, we're broadcasters, dude. We know how to put a we know how to put a bow around it when we need to and everything. But no, man, great book. Congratulations on on book two. And uh, man, I, I I don't know how long uh, your your experiment is going to take to find out you know where things lead and and where this yeah. uh, this kind of uh, fearless uh, nerd who isn't persecuted for liking D and D. Uh, yeah. where, where it's going to take us. But, uh, yeah, man, I, I, I look forward in our senior years having this discussion and go, see, you were right. I didn't think you were going to say it, but you were right. <laughs> hopefully. But, dude, I hope, I hope uh, hopefully, uh, I don't know, I know you're 50-50 for San Diego, but uh, if, uh, if you're there, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll definitely say hello to each other. That would be great. Excellent. Good luck with the book, and uh, good luck, as always, with uh, – Pop, pop culture party on uh, on NPR. If it's not on one of your, I don't, I don't, do you have affiliates or is it purely a podcast? It's purely a podcast. Okay, excellent. Well, that's all right. We're in that uh, world of you know on demand uh, entertainment when you want it. So when you're done listening Absolutely. to this episode, download Pop Culture Party and enjoy Glenn Weldon and his uh, his crew talking about pop culture. But uh, thanks, dude. Pleasure talking thanks. as always. Yes, my my pleasure as well. Thanks, man. Fun conversation, as always, with Glenn Weldon here on Word Balloon to wrap things up for today. Uh, April is going to be a nuts month. I have got such a stack of interviews that were kind of contingent 
on uh, news being released uh, this weekend at Emerald City. Uh, as I'm recording, the Image Expo has already happened, and so a lot of big announcements were made, and a lot more conversation tied to that can now be released on Word Balloon. So we've got a lot coming in the days ahead. I've already uh, alerted people via Twitter under uh, my at John Word Balloon account and under my Facebook page as well. Uh, people like Will Dennis, the uh, Vertigo editor at DC, uh, has left the company back when they made the move to Burbank. And uh, he's got a lot of uh, freelance editing that he is uh, taking care of, including a great new project just released uh, through Image. Uh, the announcement was made. It hasn't come out yet. Moonshiners. Uh, with Brian Azzarello and Eduardo Riso. We talk about that, and also Will's time at Vertigo and how Vertigo has changed. Uh, really, also, you know, new announcements coming for the new direction of Vertigo at Emerald City. So what a great time to reflect back and look at uh, Vertigo with Will Dennis. So that's coming up on the next Word Balloon. We've got a new Bendis conversation coming up, a new Bendis tapes with Brian Michael Bendis, and Charles Soule is coming up, uh, returning to Word Balloon. Ryan Stegman, we've talked to him on the floor and at panels. We've never had a one-on-one on Word Balloon. That's coming up this month. Hopefully Mark Wade and I are going to be touching base. Uh, more first-timers as well, uh, more uh, podcast celebrities, not just Adrian Paul and Glenn Weldon, but uh, some others that you might know and uh, listen to if you're a fan of the same kind of podcasts that I am. And I think you are because I, I share my uh, favorite podcast with you on a lot of Word Balloon episodes. So uh, it's going to be a lot of fun this month. It's busy. It's coming fast and furious. But the good news is that means more content for you. So I hope you enjoy what you're getting so far this month in April and what's to come. Uh, Word Balloon today was brought to you by Amazon.com. Again, if you go through the Amazon portal at Word Balloon right on my webpage, it takes you directly to normal Amazon uh, and you can shop as you normally do. But Word Balloon gets a commission for bringing you to Amazon. It doesn't cost you any more. Everything stays the same price. So if you're inspired today and want to get the Cape Crusade, Glenn Weldon's book, Great way to do it. Purchase it through Amazon, through the Word Balloon portal. Cliff Nesteroff, his comedian's book that we talked about back in November. Another great way. You need pants. I need pants. I buy them through Amazon occasionally. I do it through the Word Balloon portal. So, uh, you know, that, that really does help uh, Word Balloon out. Gives us a few cents on the dollar. And it adds up. So thank you for the people who have done it already. Big purchases, small purchases, it doesn't matter. Word Balloon gets a cut for bringing you to Amazon. So thanks for using the Word Balloon portal to Amazon. I hope you'll uh, consider it the next time you make your Amazon purchases. Word Balloon is also brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners who directly support this program with their uh, monthly subscription through Patreon, but also uh, through the word of mouth of letting their friends know, hey, you might like this show. It's fun. You don't have to wait for convention panels to get an in-depth interview or conversation. That's what happens here at Word Balloon every week. And I'm very proud of the level of conversation that my guests bring. I do my best to keep up with them. But I think it ends up being a very entertaining show that is unlike any other show on the Internet, on broadcasting, podcasting, any platform you consider. Um, it's exceptional because of the guests I'm able to get and uh, the Word Balloon, League of Word Balloon listeners help me make that happen by making it easier for me to get to conventions, make the connections, and uh, get the new interviews. So thank you very much for your support. Uh, if you'd like to help us further at Word Balloon, all you can do is, uh, uh, ways you can do that would be uh, if you want to leave a review at iTunes, that's huge, and also rate the show. 
Um, I had two feeds going at uh, iTunes, and for whatever reasons, they killed the original feed, and that had like over 150 reviews. So uh, it would really be great to get a bunch more reviews. So if you do listen through iTunes, that's a big help. Rate the show. Uh, it keeps me in the new and noteworthy categories, and it keeps our position high in the comic book podcast categories on iTunes. It makes it easier for people to see. But be honest, you know, hey, if, if I bug you, this show sucks, and let me tell you why. I'll take it, no problem. Any feedback, good or bad, it makes a difference at iTunes. That's still the primary place to hear Word Balloon. Word Balloon is on SoundCloud. It is on Stitcher. Um, if you uh, enjoy the show at those places as well, let people know. Uh, and uh, thank you for the support. we got March great programming coming up in April. I can't wait to share it with you. Until next time, thanks for listening. Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2016.